Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to Childless Not By Choice, where my mission is to recognize and speak to the broken hearts of childless, not by choice women and men around the world. Savella Morgan here. I am spreading the great news that we can live a joyful, relevant, and fulfilled life, although we could not, did not have the children we so wanted. Before we get started here, I have a couple of people I'd like to shout out, my Patreon contributors. They are VIPs in my site because their contributions help maintain the platform and the podcast that you're listening to. Patreon contributors are those who have taken an interest in the platform in the podcast, whether they fit the childless not by choice demographic or not. They have decided to contribute a certain dollar amount on a regular basis to help fund my dream of creating awareness and conversation for the childless not by choice community globally. Click the Patreon link for details and to become a patron. And so I'd like to thank Jordan Morgan, and I would like to thank Ivy Calhoun for your monthly patronage. It is truly appreciated. Thank you so very much. And there is a third spot there for your name. It says your name here. So anytime you'd like to join in by contributing to the conversation, by contributing a monthly amount, minimum $5, there is a $5 level, a $25, a $50, and a $100 level. Whatever you think will help create conversation globally for and about the childless not by choice demographic, you are more than welcome to make that contribution. If you have any questions at all, feel free to message me, but the link is in the show notes to the Patreon site. It's www.patreon.com forward slash childless not by choice. So thanks again to Jordan Morgan and to Ivy Calhoun. Well, I would also like to, at this time, uh, welcome my guest for today's episode. And so let me go ahead and say it now. Welcome to episode 105. And today my guest is Mrs. Pamela Mahoney-Sigdenos. She is an author, blogger, and women's health advocate. She emerged as a reluctant spokeswoman in 2008 after a health reporter from the New York Times asked if she'd be willing to openly discuss her infertility experience. Pamela discussed the stubborn persistence of the infertility condition and the lack of a cultural framework to process the losses associated with being childless not by choice. The New York Times feature story that resulted produced astonishment and relief that someone candidly addressed the trauma of failed IVF and legacy of infertility. Soon thereafter, she wrote what became an award-winning book called Silent Sorority. It became the first memoir on infertility not authored by a mother. Pamela's writing explores the complicated, disenfranchised grief and identity issues that accompany involuntary childlessness. Now, more than a decade outside of the grief she once felt so viscerally, she educates and writes about the false promises and limitations of reproductive medicine and the personal and social impacts that accompany failed IVF. She is the co-founder of the grassroots initiative reprotechtruths.org. When she's not researching and writing, she enjoys discussing history, indie films, documentaries, politics, current events, and literature with extended family and friends. Welcome to the podcast, Pamela. How are you doing today? 
Wonderful, Sevilla. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. I'm so happy that you are here. As I read the end of your intro here, which I had, of course, read before, but I read it again this time. And this time I was like, wow, she discusses politics with extended family and friends? (laughs) Well, in recent times, it's become a little more muted, but from time to time, I will venture there. (laughs) I know. So it's just a joke. I'm thinking most of us are just very muted right now just to have peace in our lives. But at any rate... Peace is a good thing. Exactly. It very much is. So once again, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. I cannot wait to get started because I know that your brain is so full of wonderful information just from having you know spoken to you in the past that I know that you have a lot of great content to contribute to the podcast, to the listeners. So without further ado, I wanted to get started with the first question. And um, it's a little bit of a commentary. I just wondered, as I read one of your blogs, your articles, I read that childless, not by choice women, quote, have more time to confront our feelings than the mother who is busy raising or trying to have kids, unquote. And that statement made me a little nervous, as I've always believed that when we have too much time to think, we can go to some dark or negative places. And sometimes that's good, as going to those places can help a healthier mind process and bring thoughts back to a good place, resulting hopefully in a more positive outcome of our processing. But what do you say to the woman who is still grieving and maybe not quite dealing with negative thoughts properly? Well, I would say a few things. And I think at face value, that statement could rankle some folks, and I understand why. I, I don't want to leave the impression that we have lives that are uncomplicated or leave us too much time because we are all very busy, very active, very much engaged in our communities and in our extended family. But I think what's really important, and this took me a very long time, and I hope I can shorten it for others, to recognize is that negative emotions get a bad rap in a lot of cases. One of my all-time favorite films is one called Inside Out, which came out several years ago. And the producers actually consulted with a number of psychologists to really get it right. And for those who've not seen the film, I'd recommend that it's, it's actually animated, but it's, it's got a lot of adult messages along with it. One that really took me by surprise and also helped give me an aha moment was that the emotion of sadness is actually an organizing emotion. Mm. And we tend to try to, to mute sadness, to turn it away, to not dwell on it, because it does bring up a lot of very heavy and sometimes very difficult emotions that also are accompanied by anger and a number of other emotions that typically are categorized in the negative space. Um, But if we really do sit with those emotions and try to understand what is causing and what is the prompt, it can actually help us to unwind and maybe move through some issues that we have parked basically because we just don't want to confront them. Right, because I mean, it is an emotion. It's part of our makeup as human beings. So we can't ignore it. We can't ignore the negative side of things. And we do need negative and positive to make things work properly. It's just how do you deal with the negative? Because negative can seem so negative. <laughs> it can. And in that sense, it does sort of turn the conventional wisdom on its head. What I found was oftentimes when I was feeling 
my saddest or feeling a little disgruntled or somewhat angry, if I actually did sort of work through it, sit down and understand what is this trying to teach me? What am I not seeing? And how can I both embrace it, sit with it, and learn from it? And what I discovered was the more that I sat with my anger and my sadness, the more I was able to release it because I was able to recognize, yes, I hear you, anger. Yes, sadness, I'm with you. And once I recognized and accepted the emotion, I was able to dissipate it. Right. So that's most likely, and I'm trying to stick to this point because I really want to get to the woman who I have spoken with time after time who is just not dealing with, and I don't mean this to sound negative or as if I'm denigrating anyone, but we have to be real, especially in this demographic with the fact that there are some women who are just not dealing well, no matter what you say or do to try to encourage them. They are just feeling that their lives are over because they couldn't have children and there's nothing anyone can tell them to make them feel better. Even counseling is suggested at certain points with with certain women, depending on where they are in their journey, because they're just not feeling that there could be a, a positive outcome after hearing that they will not be able to have children. So I guess the reason I'm sticking with this is, yeah, I'm just like, what do you say to that woman? Well, first of all, I would say to that woman, I am you. I really lived that experience and I lived it for a very prolonged period of time. I had friends and people who had lived in the world of counseling who would dance around and try to help me to work through it, to express it. And I literally shut them out. I just did not want to hear what they had to say. I felt that they did not in any way, shape, or form have any real deep understanding of what I was living with. And I realized the more that I shut people out and the more that I put myself in this very bunker-like mentality, the more I made myself even that much harder to reach. And it was unhealthy for me. Somebody once told me, and again, These are all very academic, and when you're thinking and hearing about them, when you're in that visceral moment, it does frustrate and make you angry, and you want to say, look, you want to shake the individual and say, I can't get you to understand why what you're saying is so infuriating to me right now. But as, again, time went on, and I allowed that to kind of sit with me and to understand why am I closing the door? Why am I not willing to hear someone say, I'm there to listen. And I think listening is a very important component to this. First of all, we have to have the freedom to speak our truth. Sometimes our truth is really painful to hear. Sometimes our truth is really not very pretty. But at the same time, if we are heard, that allows us to continue to work through. So I think it really becomes a two-way street. When someone says to you, you can have a joyful life, that can feel like a slap in the face. (laughs) But if you say to that person, tell me why, and I'm here to sit quietly and listen, you're able to articulate maybe some of those things that have not really been well processed by me personally and others. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. That's a a great take on things. And I really wanted to, to extend that question for the woman who was listening, who was just not there yet and just feels like she'll never be there and it's not fair the end 
So thank you for really expanding on that. And I want to say to that woman, I hear you, I know you, and you'd be amazed at our kindred spirit. Yes. And amazed at the journey, if you stay on the journey, where you can get to, because you're not that, really that person anymore. You're, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking you're a totally different person now. And that took time and journeying and just, like you said, facing the negative thoughts and feelings as well as the positive. It was a lot of work, and I don't want to mislead people into thinking that it's as simple as turning off a light switch, going to bed, and waking up a different person. Mm -hmm. It is really agonizing at times, and I have always described it as a non-linear path. Mm -hmm. There will be days where you're taking a couple steps forward and big steps backwards, and you have to, again, keep it all in context, and I would just growl at people who would tell me, give it time. And I would say to them, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of waiting. And that sense of futility is a really difficult thing to have to work through. Yeah, that time thing. Women know that we have this biological clock thing we have to deal with. And then people are talking about, give it time. And that's before we realize that we can't have children. And then after we realize we can't have children, then we have to hear about the time again. And it's just, yeah, that can be really annoying. <laughs> So. Well, and I will say there is one added wrinkle, which may sound really obvious at the surface, but it took me a little while to appreciate this. Mm -hmm. And for women who live monthly cycles, there is a built-in reminder. Mm -hmm. And this may sound really odd, but I found once I went through menopause, that reminder went away. And it really did give me a little more runway, sort of move in a forward direction. And I guess then, too, that could be the same with those of us who had hysterectomies before menopause, although I've had to deal with menopause twice, and I've talked about that before, the man-made menopause from a certain drug that I took to try to reduce the fibroids, which sent me into man-made menopause, which to me was even worse than the natural menopause that I'm dealing with now. So having had to go through it twice it is quite interesting, but I, I think I understand what you're saying because after the hysterectomy, then I don't have to worry about that monthly reminder. And sometimes I even forget that it was there or counting, you know, so you know when that monthly reminder was coming, the, the little counting your mom teaches you to do when you're a kid, those types mm -hmm. of things. And so, yeah, I, I quite understand what you're saying about just kind of forget that that's about that reminder and how it can remind you of what's not happening. But at any rate, as we move on here, I also, <laughs> this is one of my pet peeves. This may be from another one of your um, blogs. It says, quote, it is quite striking to see that women who do have children but still wish for more children report poorer mental health than those who have no children but have come to accept it, unquote. And, oh, I think I put in here, this is a quote from your blog, Fess Up. What are your blind spots? And uh, as I read the article, I thought two things. You made two great points. One, if you are probably most childless, not by choice women who had the child, we wouldn't, if, if we were one of those women, we wouldn't grumble about the fact that women should be happy they got the one. I think I bumbled that. But I think my point is, if we were one of the women who was now grumbling that she only got one, we wouldn't you know, we wouldn't see the unhappiness. The other point is, maybe this will help it make more sense. 
human nature tends to maintain a level of loss if we don't get everything we wanted, i.e. the number of children we really wanted, not just the one. So I said I would be honest, one of my biggest pet peeves is to hear a woman murmur about not being able to have more children. I always want to say, are you kidding me right now? It's totally one of my biggest pet peeves, if not the biggest one in this childless, not by choice demographic and area of life is for people to grumble about not getting all when they got some. And I, I remember thinking about this just in the very obvious context of, you know, if you're looking at a, a pie and somebody gets a slice and you get none, you think, well, you were able to taste something right. that we were denied completely. And so there is a very interesting layering. And I didn't fully appreciate this when I started in the blogging world that there were many subcategories of women who were dealing with loss and grief associated with children they were unable to have. And one individual actually put together a pretty cogent piece about the pain Olympics and who gets the gold, bronze, and silver. Um, <laughs> and, and when we started to realize that we're all in this painful period of dealing with loss, that we can get hung up with, you know, who has more loss than someone else. Yes. Um, but I do believe that in some ways, the very nature of knowing that I would never have children of my own, that that did give me at least an opening where I was able to reinvent myself in a way that was completely new and different. Whereas I have had women, friends and others who have had one who would have liked to have had more and they're sort of stuck in limbo because they have all the demands of being a parent and at the same time really envision that they would have a larger family. And so they're not able to identify fully with the kind of woman like us who never had the responsibilities day to day of raising children, but at the same time feel that sense of, hey, I'm in this already. I had prepared my life to encounter more children versus one. So I think, and this is going to maybe sound a little bit patronizing, so I don't want to sound that way, but in a sense, we are forced to evolve and release that part of it to a degree that other women cannot. That is interesting because I never thought about it that way. But, well, we can go down another road with this because now as women who are childless not by choice and realizing, having come to terms with it, dealing with it on a daily basis or maybe not so daily sometimes because depending again on where we are in our journey, we're doing a little bit better than someone who's just starting out or a little bit further back in their journey. And at any rate, we have come to terms with it. We're living with it. We're not thinking about another child, like the woman with the one child. Like you said, she's kind of in limbo. So I understand that, and, and that would probably, I mean, people are going to take offense wherever they can find it. So I don't think it's patronizing. I think it's just us realizing that we can stay in these Olympic Games, or we can deal with where we are, whether we are childless, not by choice, or the woman who's trying to have another one, or two or three. But we I believe, still have to understand where each other is. And yes. that's kind of what I talk about on this podcast a lot, is the childless not-by-choice woman is not 
the only one dealing with things. We're all dealing with issues and worries and problems, but just in a different way and different worries and problems. We just have to be able to see each other. Yes, and that sensitivity and compassion and reciprocal validation, and I think that's a really important thing here, that we may not be able to 100% understand someone else's life, Mm-hmm. But if we're willing to respect that they're in a difficult place and be heard in kind, then that really helps to eliminate some of that frustration or misunderstanding. And that's a lot where I spent December talking about empathy on a daily basis on my platform. And one of my admins actually posted that between November talking about being thankful and December talking about empathy, she feels like she's really come a long way and someone actually told her how good she was with children recently and she didn't fall apart (laughs) after that commentary. And so, you know, it's just amazing because I see the growth in me too, because just a few years ago, I really could care less if you already had a child and wanted another one. I just thought you were just being ridiculous with your thoughts. And now I'm thinking, I get it. And I never thought I would be here to say I can totally understand as a childless, not by choice woman who never even got to taste the pie, that I could understand that you got a slice, but you wanted another slice. (laughs) Oh, wow. I can't believe it. Anyway, that's what growth is all about. And And it comes to us when we least expect it. Yes. Yes, it does. It just kind of shows up. So that's amazing. But um, another thing that I I thought about as I was reading, um, I was thinking, you know, when you talk about outliers, it's kind of pivoting a little bit here. We talk about outliers, the rest of us, we didn't even make the cut as outliers, you say, no graphics on the number of women who came away empty-handed after extensive and expensive fertility treatments, no graphics on the number of failed adoptions, I thought about how that would be a great project for all of us running and maintaining childless, not by choice platforms to maybe get together and create those graphics ourselves because who else is going to do it? Right. And I've spent a lot of time researching just because I have a a curious mind and I know that we live in 2019, but women like us have existed as long as people have walked the planet. And so there have clearly been other women who've had to work through and come to terms with different changes and losses in their lives. And I often wonder how it is that there is no catalog, there is no sort of history. We are just not included. And so being able to identify in a way that, again, is sensitive and compassionate, because there are a lot of women who reach this state and want to put it behind them and never discuss it again because Mm -hmm. it brings up too much pain and suffering. But if there was a really interesting and welcoming way to give people space to acknowledge that they fit in this subcategory, then it would be, I think, really instrumental to reveal to the rest of the world, we're here, you just don't see us. Right. Hiding in plain sight, as I like to say. And as you were just speaking, it occurred to me that, yes, childless, not by choice women have existed since the dawn of time. But because of society and culture and some more difficult cultures than others, we tend to be ignored and we appreciate being ignored because we don't want to be brought to the the forefront because then we can 
depending on where in the world we are, very horrible it, things can happen. It can be a target. Yeah, exactly. I fully understand, yes. But I still believe, and I guess that's why I have this podcast, and that's why you have the platform you have and so many other women, that we need to take the risk to stop hiding in plain sight and talk about our demographic more because I think that's, and I talk about this a lot as well, when we face the monster, we realize the monster is not so big and scary and ugly as we thought it was. And I feel very much so, and even more so four years later into this whole podcasting and this platform that we need to create awareness globally because women are suffering globally because they can't have children. And I recently posted a a news story about a woman who had been married to this man for three years. He died. The family burnt down her house and kicked her out of the compound because Mm. she had no children. So she was of no use to them. And so these things are happening now in 2019. And I feel like we have to get the word out. We have to keep going and get the word out as tedious and as difficult as the work can sometimes be, we have to continue to press to get the word out. And I fully appreciate the tenacity required because it can be really, really difficult and long and drawn out. I think the other thing that I've taken away from the last, you know, several decades of thinking this through Mm -hmm. is that we provide an interesting new leaping off point for the next generation of people who will end up walking in our shoes. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, the more that we can be open about some of the difficulties that we are going to experience having lived what we've lived through, the better prepared the next generation will be. And so in the same way that whether it's a coach or a mentor or some, you know, really wise person who's come into our lives, has helped prepare us for different life transitions, you know, when it's time to separate and move out on our own and, you know, maybe start a new chapter in our lives, whether it's a new job, whether it's moving to a new place. People explain to us, you're going to go through some transition. There Mm -hmm. will be some bumps along the way. You know, because we've had that sort of grounding, we're not surprised when we wake up in a new place and we feel a little lonely or We're not perplexed when we start a new job and we're feeling overwhelmed because someone had warned us, you're going to face this at some point. So we come with tools. We have a way to work through it. Exactly. And that kind of leads to my next point or next question where you talk about how there is no welcome to the club kit for childless, not by choice women. We get to see the rites of passage, but we don't get to partake. And so what do you think we should do instead? What is our rite of passage and, and passage to wear? And I think you well, meant about like women now in our age group becoming grandmothers. And so that's the next step we're going to miss as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a little bit of, of maybe snark or, or uh, irony in my welcome to the club thing, because I can recall my own experience that I didn't want to join this club. <laughs> and so it's one thing when it's something you seek It's another when you feel like you've sort of ended up playing musical chairs and you didn't get a chair. (laughs) And in that regard, I think that there is something to be said for the consolation prize and knowing that while it may not be everything you wanted, that you are not alone, that there are others who relate and understand and 
can be with you and understand your existence in a way that you might not have expected. For me, and again, when I started blogging 12 plus years ago, there wasn't a Sevilla podcast. There wasn't a lot of pathways for me to find my sense of community. And as a result, it was very lonely. Mm -hmm. And it felt like I was doing all of the heavy lifting with nobody there to accompany me or to help me find my path. So I think every little thing that we do gives someone some sense of identity and a sense of sisterhood Mm -hmm. that we wouldn't necessarily have been able to manage some of this without. Very true. And we may get to see it as the next generation comes up or we may not, but we did help to create a path. And that's something I'm going to bring up in a little while when I ask you about Eric Erickson's generativity versus stagnation stage. So, but before we get there, the article that you wrote about Prince Harry, where he says to bury your grief at your own peril, basically. Mm-hmm. And I read about how you met some new neighbors and they asked, of course, the question we all get. So do you have children? Or some people even jump to how many children do you have? Because still people are assuming that everyone has children. It just boggles my mind sometimes how 25% of women are suffering through infertility or don't have children. That's a quarter of the population. And people still assume that every woman has a child. It just amazes me. But at any rate, I found myself thinking how far we have come as a society to be able to talk about our childlessness, but how far we still have to go when people are still using that old tired line of, well, you can have one of mine. And so I just wonder if you think we've only scratched the surface. And you kind of answered it in the previous question where you said we are setting things up for the next generation. But I still would like to know where do you, you know, where you think we are on the timeline whatever the timeline is, have we only just scratched the surface in 2019 to create awareness about us? Or are we further along than we think because we're in the trenches? Well, we're definitely further along than we were in 2009. So in the last 10 years, I can point to a number of interesting inflection points that tell me that the level of ignorance is starting to drop. And when you consider the mountain of ignorance that's out there, it is going to take some time. But I do believe as we, and it's not easy, I don't do it every single time. But if I'm in a good place, Mm -hmm. and I think that the person is willing to hear what I have to say, I will very matter of factly just nicely say, please, for the next person who may get this question, I'd like to let you know that that's a really difficult and sometimes painful assumption that I would encourage you not to make again. And so my recommendation to anyone who's meeting somebody new, because we don't know if they have children, if they don't, if they're married, if they're not, if they've lost a spouse or someone very close to them, a partner, then the first thing I say when I meet someone is, tell me about yourself. Because in a matter of moments, you will learn what their comfortable boundaries are. If they want to talk about something that they feel really passionate about, it could be a cause, it could be a project, it could be art, it could be a hobby. Giving someone open space to take the conversation in any direction they want to 
immediately puts them at ease. So saying, I'd love to learn more, tell me about yourself, really does give both parties a chance to learn about each other at their own pace. I love that. Tell me about yourself. That seems so sincere and just so inviting and open. I'm going to use that. (laughs) I I really really, like that. It's a a wonderful icebreaker and can sometimes take you in places or or in directions you wouldn't have expected, Mm -hmm. but it really does open up a, a much more interesting conversation. And then even if the person doesn't tell you about their status, i.e. children or not, husband or not, spouse or not, or whatever, you can find out about that later if you need to, because really it's not the most important thing about a person. I mean, maybe I'm saying that because I'm childless and husbandless, but if people who have spouses, I've noticed this throughout my life, if you have a spouse, that person is going to come up almost immediately. So even if you say, tell me about yourself, you can say, my husband and I, or my wife and I, you know, people bring up their spouse. I have Mm -hmm. seldom run into somebody who was married who did not bring up their spouse during the course of my initial conversation with them. And if their spouse never came up, I'm not going to, you know, paint with a broad brush, but if their spouse never came up, I would probably find out about it on the second conversation or wonder, hmm, I wonder what's going on there. You know? Yes. And ultimately, and again, this may be a generational thing, but what I've discovered is typically people who are in the throes of parenting will let you know about it almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And so if I obviously don't bring up any children, my hope is that it will guide them to understand that that's not a central part of my identity or where I spend my time. And it, it goes both ways. And just a funny aside, I remember my parents are uh, in their 80s now and being somewhat, I guess, as a child, somewhat narcissistic, I always assume that when my parents are visiting with their friends that they're talking about us. (laughs) So (laughs) at one point I said, oh, you know, please give me some insights into your conversation. What did you learn? And and did I come up? And my mother said, you know, we don't always discuss our children. (laughs) And I thought, okay, fair point. So it goes both ways. I think the conversation can really be a much more interesting place to be rather than put people in boxes. Right. And because you didn't come up in the initial conversation, if it's worth a second conversation with these people, you would eventually come up, I guess. Right. Is what I was saying. It'll, it'll, you know, the important things in your life will eventually come up, but they don't always have to come up immediately when you meet somebody. And maybe this is just me speaking from a childless woman's point of view. But at any rate, so you think we are doing much better in 2019 than we were in 2009, which is probably kind of obvious. We have to be we're growing making somewhere. good headway. Right. <laughs> awesome. So I read the um, information you sent me on Eric Erickson's generativity versus stagnation stage. Well, he has his eight stages, but stage seven is, is what we're here for today, I suppose. You mentioned how this stage takes, or he mentions how this stage takes place during middle adulthood, ages 40 to 65 years. And on this stage, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it in your words, but my question is, what can we do as we become older to help alleviate that helpless feeling that we will leave this planet leaving nothing of consequence behind? And I said, asking for a friend, meaning sometimes I feel that way. (laughs) I think there are a number of ways that we can have a legacy. And this is, again, 
part of both the challenge and the opportunity because we don't have a kind of a built-in legacy. Um, in some ways, I think people take for granted just because they have children that they will be remembered. And I would like to take it in a different direction. When I was younger, when I wanted to go for long walks, we had a church nearby and there was a cemetery and I would walk through and I would look at the headstones and each person's name and, and where they lived and their date, you know, their time being alive was always interesting to me because I wanted to learn more about that individual. And the more I realized that we are very much in a position to write our own story and to leave a mark in ways that we would not necessarily anticipate, gives us a lot of uh, opportunity to think about how we want to spend our time with the next generation. And I think Eric Erickson does an interesting job about making the point that for people who do have children, they have an automatic, right? There's this sense of instilling a certain amount of raising, schooling, making sure that somebody is well prepared to move and become an adult. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of rote tasks involved in that. But for us, as individuals who can have an influence on other lives, we can do that with people who are older than us. We can do that with people who are younger than us. And understanding where that growth comes from can be everything from choosing to be a coach, choosing to be a mentor, looking at and how we want to leave the planet a better place than how we might have found it. It could very well be through causes, if environmentalism, if art is a big, uh, a big area of your life. And that's where I think I do want to look at this as very much a positive. If, and this happens both to parents and non-parents. Mm. If you choose to shut yourself down, if you choose to stagnate, if you decide there's nothing more for me to learn, then I actually feel sorry for that individual, whether they were a parent or not, because they have chosen to decide to close off their curiosity. They have chosen not to grow. And I think that that is a very sad state of affairs. And so I would encourage anyone who's feeling like they're stuck to think about opening some new windows and doors and, and think about it may not be an immediate epiphany of where you're going to go, but just the idea that you can open a door or open a window gives you permission to move through it. And you may not get immediate results either. Sometimes, um, especially if the doors and windows have not quite been opened before and you Others may think, well, suddenly your doors and windows are open. They may just wait to see if you are serious about what you're doing or not. So for those listening who are thinking that, you know, maybe this is the new year, maybe I should just go ahead and, and be more open and more welcoming, just give it time. <laughs> Here we go with that time thing again, but definitely give it time to take and for those around you to realize that you are serious about being a little bit more open. And I know that may be a little bit more difficult for those of us who are introverts, but as a diehard introvert myself, I believe that even having this podcast is my way of creating and having those open doors and windows. So no excuses about intro or extrovertedness. Just, you know, if you're thinking about opening those doors and windows, like Pamela says, please consider it because there are a lot of people out there who need us, whether we think we have anything important to say or not. There are 7 billion of us and counting on this planet. We can all fit in somewhere. So I really believe, well in, believe that, yeah. 
So as we come to a close here, Pamela, is there anything that you feel like I missed that you'd like to make sure to get the word out about? Because we have people listening from all over the planet. I'm so grateful for that, but it's true. It's happening. People are listening. I think one thing that really strikes me is that we live in a very difficult time to, to educate. And the reason I say that is prior to 1960, there was no real recourse for women who had biological inhibitors to having children, and this goes for men as well. And there was a sort of a place in our culture where somebody would say, did that person have a family? And there was an understanding that, no, they were unable to have their own children. Uh, And there was, to me, a kind of a cultural acceptance around that. There was an end of the sentence so to speak. And today, with all these new technologies that are being heavily promoted, heavily marketed by IVF clinics and other advances in science, it has really created this limbo state because there's an assumption, there's an ignorance about how difficult and how limited those technologies really are. And so the idea that somebody could close one chapter and open another and move forward in a way that does not involve parenting, in some ways is not available to us. So we have to continue to let people know that these are very limited technologies. And I think especially now that people have this great belief in the advancement of science, it does not give us permission to let people know that those technologies didn't work and that there's a new opportunity to move in a new direction. So I would say there's a lot of work to be done, setting expectations about what is possible and what isn't, Mm -hmm. and giving people permission to close the door to uh, intervention. The hardest thing for me was letting go Mm -hmm. of seeing more doctors because ours was an unexplained infertility. If they had told us flat out, just ain't gonna happen, I think it would have maybe given me permission to end and move in a new direction sooner. You know, I may have to do a a whole separate episode on this and maybe even do a group episode because this was discussed in a previous episode about knowing when to just say the end to trying. And uh, again, those of us who are childless, not by choice, are all here from different places. Some are through IVF, through unexplained or a failed IVF unexplained infertility, fibroids, adenomyosis, endometriosis, miscarriage, et cetera, et cetera. And so we all get here from different paths, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But for those who had an opportunity to try, and I'm saying that because in my case, I was just waiting for Mr. Wright to show up. I did consider IVF and I did consider adopting and I tried adoption twice, but it didn't work out. And then I thought about IVF. And then, of course, IVF is barely covered by insurance. There's barely anything covered by insurance. And so it would have been just a tough journey for me. And I just ended up not doing it. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is when we get to a place where it just didn't happen, no matter how we got to that place, we have to, like you said, we have to be okay with being able to say enough is enough. And this has come up in several previous episodes to the point where I think it's a discussion that we need to really, really have 
and make yes. women realize that it really is okay to say enough is enough and not worry about what your friends and family are saying about giving it one more try or waiting a little bit longer. In my case, I waited 10 years. I went through 10 years of pain, extended stomach accidents every month and just embarrassment and three myomectomies before finally just saying, you know what, I've had it. And so the woman who's going through IVF, how many rounds will she have? And how, when will she say the end? And how does her husband feel about it? You know, I feel like I'm rambling, but it's just like... No, I think there's a, there's a need to honor the decision and to understand just how hard that decision is to make in the first place. Right. And so, again, this is a very much an education. It's, it's something I feel very passionate about because the first step to healing is being allowed to decide when you're ready to end and mm-hmm. start something new. And if everyone's on different wavelengths, you know, you're going to have to constantly circle back and justify. And it's, it's exhausting and it can be emotionally draining. Definitely. Well, thank you again so very much for taking the time to record this episode with me, Pamela. I've gone ahead and put links to your blogs in the show notes. And I actually put the uh, clip about Eric Erickson's generativity versus stagnation information in the show notes as well, because I really found it intriguing. So for those listening, please check out the show notes. It's, It's always chock full of information, but definitely check out the information on the Silent Sorority, which is the book that you wrote, Pamela, and the blog, Silent Sorority. A lot of great information. I did a lot of reading and definitely check out this. You know, let me read it real quickly here. If you don't mind, Pamela. Go for it. Generativity versus stagnation is the seventh of eight stages of Eric Erickson's theory of psychosocial development. And in this stage takes place uh, during the middle adulthood, as I mentioned before, ages 40 to 65 years. Generativity refers to, quote unquote, making your mark on the world through creating or nurturing things that will outlast an individual. People experience a need to create or nurture things that will outlast them, often having mentees or creating positive changes that will benefit other people. We give back to society through raising our children, being productive at work, and becoming involved in community activities and organizations. Through generativity, we develop a sense of being a part of the bigger picture. Success leads to feelings of usefulness and accomplishment, while failure results in shallow involvement in the world. And you mentioned that earlier. By failing to find a way to contribute, we become stagnant and feel unproductive. These individuals may feel disconnected or uninvolved with their community and with society as a whole. Success in this stage will lead to the virtue of care. Unquote. And I just, I read that so many times as I was doing my research because what I felt like as human beings, we do want to give back. You know, for the most part, we want to give back. There are some very mean, ugly people out there. We know this. But sure. I think for the most part, the average human wants to give back and be helpful and to help others. And whether it's their own children or just going into a nursing home and singing to the residents for a little while and you know just whatever it is that we can do to give back so this really this really touched me quite a bit obviously <laughs> and and i would also add that you know we would like a seat at the table and mm-hmm. for many years and this circles back to the beginning of our conversation 
we have felt like outliers. We have felt like we have not had a place set for us. Right. And to help, you know, the rest of the world understand that the stereotypes that exist out there are, you know, not altogether representative of us and in fact can be very, very narrow. We want to blast through those stereotypes and get a seat at the table. Right. We are not a collective. We're a demographic, but we're not a collective. And we deserve a seat at the table. Very well said. So I want to thank you once again for, for joining me, Pamela, and everyone listening. Thank you so much. Please do check out the show notes as all of Pamela's information is in there. I'm telling you, I just love listening to how she has brought everything that she has learned together and so beautifully and eloquently and so calmly. And you see it through her blogs. You see her personality in her blogs and just, you know, as you've heard her here today. So please do check out her information. And Pamela, thanks once again for joining us. I appreciate it. It's been a joy, Sevilla. And thank you to all your listeners. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. See you later. Bye.